Hello, everyone, and welcome again to another weekly episode of Mormon Matters Podcast, your thoughtful yet provocative weekly romp through all things Mormon, including current events, popular culture, politics, and maybe even a tiny bit of spirituality. Um, I'm your host, John DeLynn, but today we have a very exciting episode planned, and in fact, I'm only your host for about uh, maybe 60 more seconds because we are going to have uh, the um, always exciting Rosalind Welch uh, hosting, guest hosting today on uh, Mormon Matters. So Rosalind uh, lives in St. Louis, Missouri with her husband, John, and her three children. She's an independent scholar of early modern English literature and an eclectic assortment of other topics. And she blogs on Mormon issues at timesandseasons.org. Rosalind, thank you for planning this session. You're welcome, John. I'm glad to be here. Great. Um, now, Rosalind, you've uh, invited another special guest to be with us. I'll just introduce him real quick, and then you can welcome him. Brian Gibson lives and works in Los Angeles with his wife and daughter. He works as a writer and producer in reality and documentary television and blogs at Mormon Mentality and Culture Blog. Welcome, Brian. Thanks. And uh, later on in the show, we're going to have David King Landreth as well. David lives with his wife, Shannon, and four daughters in Boston, Massachusetts. David blogs at mormonmentality.org and is the creator of ldselect.org. Dave, thanks for joining us. Thanks. Good to be here, John. All right. Well, uh, Rosalind has prepared two segments for this presentation. The first is on uh, Richard Dutcher, the uh, Mormon filmmaker, and his recent, most recent film, States of Grace, as well as his other uh, corpus of work, as Rosalind uh, told me to say. Uh, and then in the second segment, um, they will be discussing uh, a new article that's come out in New York Times Magazine, which is called, I believe, Orthodox uh, Paradox. Is that right, Rosalind? Yes, that's right, John. All right. Well, without any further ado, Rosalind, please uh, take it away. Thanks, John. As you mentioned, our first topic today is Richard Dutcher's 2005 film, States of Grace. Uh, and just to provide a little uh, introduction to this segment, Dutcher effectively launched the Mormon cinema movement in 2000 with the release of his feature film, God's Army, which follows the eventful lives of several Mormon missionaries in Los Angeles over the course of a few weeks. I saw this film when it opened in 2000, and I loved it. It was the first church-related movie I had ever seen that I thought was effortlessly fluent in the, in the grammar of filmmaking, and I thought it achieved just the right balance between affirming and challenging themes. Dutcher followed up in 2001 with his film Brigham City, and then again in 2005 uh, he released States of Grace. During these years, um, the first half of, the, of this decade, he was a major figure in Mormon cinema, not only because of his excellent films, which he kept on uh, releasing, but also because he took the lead in defining and theorizing the concept of Mormon cinema. I believe it was he who uh, originally coined the phrase Mormon cinema. So it came as a surprise to many of Dutcher's fans when earlier this year, in April of 2007, he published an editorial in the Provo Daily Herald in which he urged Mormon filmmakers to uh, increase the quality of their products uh, and then announced that, at least for the present, he is no longer a practicing Mormon and he will not make Mormon films. He wrote uh, an explanation, 
The private answers to the questions I have asked in my prayers and in my films have led me on an unexpected journey, a spiritual path which may ultimately prove incompatible with Mormon orthodoxy. So this was his announcement of, of some distance uh, between himself and the church. And this announcement provoked sadness and even anger in many of his fans and his colleagues. And uh, there was some ink spilled in some rather bitter exchanges. Now that Dutcher's departure has had a little time to settle, I thought it would be interesting to go back to his films, and in particular to States of Grace, and look at them again in light of his subsequent, subsequent comments. I'm especially interested in his suggestion that the questions he asked in his films led in some way to his departure from the church. I wanted to ask and, and think about what questions do his films ask? And does Dutcher's public announcement inflect our reading of his films now? Now, before I bring in my, uh, my discussant here, Brian Gibson, to answer these questions, I, I want to just say a word about what this conversation is not intended to be. I, I am not particularly interested in defining who's in and who's out of Mormon cinema as a movement. Uh, and it is certainly not my intention to discredit Dutcher's films in any way or to knock them off the high position that I feel they rightfully occupy in the Mormon film canon. On the contrary, I, I really hope that Mormon audiences will continue to watch and enjoy Dutcher's Mormon films as I have, and uh, also that Mormon filmmakers will build on what I view to be his very valuable contributions. But I think Dutcher's comment about the questions implicit in his films really do give us an interesting new entrance to understand uh, what it is that he achieved in, in these three films. So with that, Brian, uh, I wonder if I can turn to you um, and ask you just to give us um, uh, your general impressions of, of the film. Did you like it? Did you not like it? What did it get right? What did it get wrong? Well, uh, my reaction is that, you know, it's a, it's a good film. There's no question. It's definitely a step up in terms of acting and production and some of the technical aspects from his earlier two films. Uh, has much as I think it's good and that I would recommend it to um, any LDS member to see, I don't think that it's perfect. I think it's flawed uh, in a really interesting way, particularly at the end. And I think that of his three films, Brigham City is the superior one, uh, but States of Grace is you know, a really good film. However, I think it goes off the rails a little bit toward the ending. And uh, I think that, that I saw it after his announcement that he was no longer going to be an Orthodox Mormon. And <clears throat> I don't know that my reaction would have been much more different if I'd seen it prior to that. Um, but I think that in light of the things that he said, you know, when he announced his departure and some of the discussion that followed, it is very interesting to go back and look at it again. Yeah, why don't you tell me a little bit more um, about your feelings about the ending? How did it go off the rails? Then I'll share with you some of mine. Okay, well, I feel like um, what I found most interesting, my initial reaction when I saw it again, as you know, some of his parting words, he was pretty critical of uh, other Mormon filmmakers being sort of maudlin and... Uh, contrived, and the ending, in particular, the last scene, I think he, it's ironic that he falls into some of the same traps that I think some of these other filmmakers um, fall into on occasion, and that he, he's pretty vocal about accusing them of doing. 
you know, there's definitely a you should be crying now moment at the end of the film. And <clears throat> I found that part really interesting. You know, it, it, to me, it was almost visually rep- similar to various scenes in church productions. Um, yeah. With everyone falling to their knees in front of the nativity scene. You know, I'm used to seeing similar scenes in when uh, Christ visits the Nephites in church productions. And I found that really interesting. Um, you know, I, I mean, my initial reaction was that Keith Merrill, who he criticizes pretty harshly, um, could have directed that scene, you know? That's actually a very interesting point, Brian. I, uh, just just a note, we, of course, expect our, that our audience will have seen the film. Um, but, but this final scene, just to remind those listeners who may have seen it a while ago, one of the main characters, Elder Farrell, um, has committed a very serious sexual sin on his mission. Um, and as a result of the shame that he um, expects to feel being sent home early, he, he attempts to commit suicide. Lots of spoilers here again. <laughs> we assume that you've seen it. Um, then a- as the film ends, um, there, as Brian mentions, there's a, a very emotional and very long scene in which uh, the ensemble of the cast gathers together around a nativity, a live nativity that has been um, set up by the Lutheran Church, I believe, on Venice Beach. And um, in this long scene um, with music you know, playing in the background and, and an adorable baby, uh, oftentimes framed in the, uh, in the viewfinder, um, you know, we we are le- are led to know that Farrell experiences a moment of grace, um, as do the other characters, and and there's a, some sort of spiritual um, event happening among this group of people. It's interesting, Brian, that you say that um, in some ways this the ending of this film is more like some of the other Mormon filmmakers that he criticizes. And, and I actually see your point there. I, I read it in a slightly different way. Um, l- like you, I, I enjoyed the film very much. Um, and also like you, I, I disliked the ending. I felt that it maybe gilded the lily just a little bit. It, <laughs> maybe it went just a little too long. I know that Dutcher has heard that criticism before and, and has rejected it. Uh, but nonetheless, that, that was my, um, re- my, my reaction to the ending. I thought, like you, that it was formally stronger than the other films, but I thought that narratively perhaps it was a bit weaker. My, my feeling was that in the first two films, Dutcher was telling the story of his community, telling his, um, his community's experiences, sharing um, stories that many of, his, of the members of his Mormon audience uh, would identify with and would recognize and claim as their own. Whereas in States of Grace, I had the feeling that he was instead here projecting his own sort of personal spiritual vision um, and had, uh, you know, had sort of done his bit in telling Mormon stories that we share together and now was trying to teach us something from the mind of Dutcher, you know, was trying to share with us his own unique vision of what grace and forgiveness is. Um, but I, I agree with your point that in doing so, he employs some of the same devices uh, that other Mormon filmmakers have. That is, you know, perhaps a bit of sentimentalism, a lot of overt emotionalism. Now, in his defense, and also in the defense of, of Keith Merrill and others, it's very difficult to uh, convey a group spiritual experience. I certainly don't know how I would go about 
doing that myself as a filmmaker, but I, I, I think uh, that we don't yet have the language, to, the visual language to do that effectively, and I don't think that Thatcher uh, discovered it in this, in this film. Uh, so, Brian, let, maybe we can talk a little bit more about some of the central themes and questions um, that are raised in States of Grace, some of these questions that may in fact have led Dutcher um, away from the church, at least socially. Um, maybe I'll tell you some of the some of the major themes that I heard. Are we all still together? Yeah. I'm no. Here. Okay. <laughs> it went quiet here. Um, it seemed to me that one of the major tensions in the film was between uh, following rules and particularly following mission rules, a sort of letter of the law mentality, versus a spirit of the law mentality, uh, in which uh, compassion is the highest good. And uh, a compassionate act justifies a number of, of technical infractions of the rules. Um, another, of course, perhaps the central and most salient theme was that of sin and forgiveness and redemption. Uh, this is sort of the, the, the arc that carries the subplot about Elder Farrell throughout the film. Um, I also thought that uh, there was a lot said about ecumenicism, that is, uh, we had main characters that were not Mormon um, who found sort of their own spiritual path, their own forms of redemption outside the institutional Mormon church. Um, and, and that was especially striking to me and, and made me wonder, you know, in what senses is this, in fact, a Mormon film? It very clearly is, um, but I think Dutcher was intending to reach out and have it transcend the sort of uh, narrow ethnic community of Mormonism and uh, speak to people of, you know, all people of faith uh, of any denomination. What, John, or <laughs> Brian, uh, do you, did you see any other themes that were important or do you want to comment on any of those particular themes that were at work in States of Grace? Sure, well I think you hit on kind of the big one which is obviously sort of letter of the law versus spirit of the law, obeying rules versus sort of obeying uh, you know, the promptings of the Spirit, as it were. And I think the, probably the major one is obviously just grace and sort of what is the general um, definition of grace among other Christian faiths. And what Dutcher perceives is sort of the Mormon version of grace or, or lack of grace, as it were. Um, and I think that in my criticism of the ending, it's not just so much the last scene in particular, but the events that lead up to it. And... I think the real clue to understanding sort of what he was going for is that Christianity Today interview. I don't know if you read that or, no, or not. No, uh -uh. did not. But he says some really revealing things, I think, in that interview. And he makes mention of the father, um, the father that's sort of not even a really a character in the film, but the one that says that he'd rather have his son come home in a box than unworthy. And that, of yes. course, leads to the suicide attempt. And in that interview, he says that that is sort of representative of traditional Mormon psychology as he sees it. So he definitely feels that, um, and in that interview, he says that most Mormons don't quite understand grace as it is taught by the church. Mm -hmm. And the feeling seems to be that that attitude of, uh, you know, better to not die than sin is sort of pervasive. And I think that's sort of the, you know, the, the indictment 
which is not so much my objection to that part of the film, but up until that point, we really haven't seen any indication that that particular character is suicidal, he seems mentally stable, and as we discussed earlier, you know, you feel like it was sort of a more thematic choice rather than a character-driven choice, which I think is probably where, the, in my mind anyway, the film begins to go astray. Because I think, like I said earlier, it falls prey to sort of didactic approach, um, whereas he's trying to get out these points about grace and his themes, and the character behavior seems unmotivated to me. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you on that. Uh, I, and I also think that, as you say, uh, for Dutcher in this film, the true sin, the greatest sin, is sort of this pathological Mormon psychology of sex, which, you know, would, le would lead to a suicide. Um, this sort of uh, rigid and um, uncompassionate view, which is um, paid off when Elder Farrell's father fails to come meet him um, and pick him up from his mission, I think Dutcher sees as, as the far greater sin than Elder Farrell's uh, sexual sin. Um, I think that this probably does sort of fit into Dutcher's own moral universe um, in his own personal sort of moral economy. It, it, another criticism that perhaps if I could I would <laughs> launch at the film is that I think the camera has a slightly lascivious eye. I, I, you know, there were lots of, lots of bare women's midriffs and, you know, lots of babes in bikinis playing volleyball. And so, some of those were necessary, I suppose, to establish the character of, El of Elder Farrell, that this is, in fact, you know, sexual temptation is his cross to bear. Uh, but I thought that Dutcher could have done that work of characterization, perhaps with a little more uh, restraint. Um, so, so in that way, I think that the, the tone of the film gives us a clue to uh, Dutcher's kind of moral economy here. Uh, Maybe. I mean, I would probably disagree with you on that point. I think he shows a lot of restraint as far as the actual sin that takes place occurs totally off camera. I think he does fairly minimal work as far as trying to establish that Farrell, you know, is tempted by attractive women. But... I mean, I mean, I think that's a valid point, but I, I wouldn't make that particular accusation. <laughs> well, then we'll, we'll agree to disagree. I guess I see Sorry. a lot of movies that are much worse in that regard, I guess. Is it, a, is absolutely point. true. Yes, it is a, a PG-13 movie, and that, that, in my mind, is usually uh, the worst possible <laughs> rating as far as uh, objectionable portrayals of women. So uh, I do give him credit for uh, beating out the competition in the PG-13 category, although but I'm not sure that's saying too much. I would also disagree with you on the other idea that, you know, he's saying there's this, I don't know what phrase you use, Psychopathology of sex, or was that what you said? Uh, I think I mean, it's pathological psychology of sex, yeah. Okay. Well, I think that the thing is, is that, you know, when you're telling a missionary story, there, we all know kind of what the major reason that missionaries are sent home for is. And so it's almost obligatory that that's what occurs, you know, if you're going to go down that road and tell that, that story. So I think that that's almost a, a, uh, a story choice that, that, that needs to be needs to be made. Um, I think that for me, he was more going for, you know, the grace, the traditional sense of grace, or the Christianity at broad sense of grace versus versus the Mormon sense of grace. Um, so I might disagree with you as far as that goes a little bit. But I think what you bring up is a real valid point. We sort of depend on Dutcher 
to be the guy who tells it how it really is and, you know, how missions really are, how missionaries really behave. And another thing that didn't work for me at the ending is the behavior once Elder Fowler commits this uh, sexual transgression. Um, you know, traditionally, in my mission anyways, when that happens, the missionaries are automatically transferred, you know, here they're let to, allowed to stay in the same apartment. The, the woman involved gets to visit the elder in the hospital. You know, she's there when his parents come to pick him up. And none of that seemed real to me or authentic. And, um, and I think it was all to build up to this ending that, you know, the filmmaker was set on presenting. And, and there's a similar type of ending in Brigham City, which works really well and is very moving. And... Perhaps it could have worked better in this film, but I just don't think it did because I think it sort of fell prey to some of the pitfalls we've we've seen before. I'll tell you what I think the difference between the endings in Brigham City and States of Grace are, and I think that for me this is uh, the the biggest clue to uh, how Dutcher's spiritual vision has changed and perhaps how that has moved him away from the church. I think, um, as I hope to discuss a little more later, I think that Dutcher's greatest uh, contribution among many to our Mormon film canon is that he developed a visual way of portraying Mormon ordinances. We see virtually every ordinance, every Mormon ordinance, excluding temple ordinances, um, at some point either in God's Army, in Brigham City, or in States of Grace. Um, he, he, I believe he took some flack at the beginning. Some people objected to that. I think it was a wonderful achievement, and I think his most moving and valuable moments have come in, um, in his sensitive and um, accurate portrayals of Mormon ordinances. At the end of Brigham City, we have a, a moment of forgiveness, a moment of sort of transcendent grace, a moment, a communal moment of spiritual experience, but it happens in the context of an ordinance, in the context of the sacrament as it's being passed. Um, I found that ending to be just so moving, I, you know, absolutely faithful to um, Mormon experience, Mormon practice, and the Mormon doctrine of grace, which is that, you know, the forgiveness is experienced through the sacraments, through the ordinances dispensed through the institutional church. Um, by contrast, at the end of States of Grace, there are many ordinances that are that are portrayed in the film, and many of them are done so very movingly. Um, but the supreme moment, the supreme spiritual moment of the film comes at the end outside the context of the institutional church, outside of any formal uh, ritual or ordinance. Um, it comes as a purely charismatic, we might say, experience, a purely spiritual experience as the spirit descends on this group of people. Um, Dutcher seems to be saying that grace um, is available outside of uh, the ordinances of the church. I think as a practical matter, that is oftentimes true. Oftentimes we sort of go through the motions during the sacraments, and uh, maybe we're, you know, many converts are baptized and don't experience a true uh, conversion until later in their spiritual journey. I think as a practical matter, uh, his point is well taken. But in terms of portraying uh, the Mormon experience from the point of view of the community, 
Um, I think he was much more faithful to that in Brigham City in showing the sacrament, the, the community worship coming together in the context of the priesthood ordinances as the supreme spiritual moment. Um, I think that's much truer to the spirit of Mormonism. And for me, at least, it, it was much more moving. Um, without that structure of the ordinance, as you say, he kind of has to fall back on um, on sort of visual cliches. Again, as I said before, I don't envy him the task. It's very difficult. Um, but he did not achieve for those charismatic group experiences what he achieved for the ordinances. That is to say, um, a moving and yet non-sentimental uh, visual language for spiritual experiences. I don't know uh, whether this is something that he's going to explore more in his future films. Maybe it will be for another filmmaker, Mormon or non-Mormon, uh, to do so. But for me, that was, um, in fact, the biggest difference. Um, I also found it to be the biggest failing of States of Grace. And I think uh, perhaps the, the biggest clue to where Dutcher's spiritual, or how Dutcher's spiritual journey is leading him away from the institutional church. Yeah, maybe. I, I think that's a valid point, although I, I sort of identify the problem elsewhere. I think that if you remember Brigham City, I was convincing to me on a character level, on a storytelling level, that that sheriff really felt guilty and felt unworthy of taking the sacrament. And, you know, I didn't believe on a character level that the assortment of people that were kneeling at the nativity scene, you know, where they were at. And I think it's, it's much more challenging. And, you know, to Dutcher's credit, he's telling, States of Grace is very much an ensemble piece, whereas yes. some of the, you know, Brigham City focused on a few key characters. And I think that, you know, that's, that's a bigger challenge for a writer, a bigger challenge for a filmmaker. And I think that, that you know, I... I think you provided some wonderful insight, but I think that's part of the problem as well, is I don't quite believe that in those circumstances that all those characters would would act that way, you know? Um, so yeah. I look at, look at it as more of a character issue, which if I might make one point, and you probably have a lot more you want to say, but the other issue, I think there was a real missed opportunity in the ending of the film to deal with the character of Lasano. It's kind of the main character. He sort of represents the, the concept of obeying the spirit of the rule rather than the literal rules. And yes. I think that it's another issue I have with the ending is the deck is sort of stacked. This guy has an opportunity to obey the, the cardinal rule of missionary service, which is stay with your companion at all times. And he doesn't. And his companion, you know, in effect, ends up going home for it. And I think that what was rang false for me is that the Kim Lasano, you don't see him suffer the guilt that would come if your lack of following the rules led to that sort of consequence for your companion. The fellow missionaries never bring that up. The mission president never brings it up. And I think that the reason why I missed it so much is I think it's an opportunity for the filmmaker to extend his theme of rules versus sort of the spirit of the law and see how that character deals with it. Instead, what we get is a character that's pretty static and unchanging in a lot of aspects. He had an opportunity to, you know, realize, perhaps, if the filmmaker wanted to go this way, that bending the rules has, its, has a consequence. Or, I know that if the theme is to get across this point that 
you know, the rules get in the way or that the rules, uh, the beauty of grace is that when we break the rules, we can, we can receive mercy, then I think he could have gone that direction as well and had that character forgive himself in some way. But to just not deal with it, I think, was a missed opportunity, to say the least. Yeah, I agree. I, I think that uh, some of his handling of this theme of leather of the law versus spirit of the law gets a bit muddled. Um, I've, I've heard sort of wildly disparate interpretations of, of Dutcher's message here. I, I've heard someone argue that Dutcher was saying that, you know, when you, dis, when you disregard the letter of the law, uh, then spiritual tragedy uh, immediately follows. I, I read it precisely the opposite. I read him to be saying uh, that, that the letter of the law following rules, uh, which is a huge part of mission life, um, uh, doesn't prevent you from from major sin and error, as we see Farrell, who's the more scrupulous of the two, is the one who ends up uh, sleeping with the, with the porn star next door, um, and that the rules, in fact, do prevent you from doing some, some real good, you know, uh, exercising true compassion. So I saw it um, as an indictment of a sort of technical um, reliance on regulations and rules. Um, but other people had, other people had very different um, understandings of it, and I think you may be right that um, maybe Lozano as a character sort of fading away at the end of the film um, to give way to the storyline of Elder Farrell may be part of the reason why that, why that theme comes out um, a little muddled in the end. Well, let me just say, I mean, you made reference to the porn star next door. I mean, I almost, you know, don't like you using that term because that character, I think, was the one that was... I was drawn to, and that got the most emotional reaction out of me when she has an extended monologue confessing to some of the, you know, films she's been in. You know, I really related that to that on a personal level, not because I'm a former porn star, but <laughs> I think it was very real and authentic. And, you know, I think it was a great performance from Rachel Emmers, but I also think that that's an example of how, you know, if you want to if you want to generate a lot of authentic emotion in your audience, you know, stay a little more true to your true to your characters. Now, I'm not, you know, as accomplished a filmmaker as Richard Dutcher by any means, but I think it's fair to point out that that was a really, in my opinion, was a really effective scene, and it it it's worth contrasting or comparing to the scene at the end. So. Yeah, I, I yeah, I don't disagree with that, and I I offer my apologies too. <laughs> To the character, I I, uh, I was flippant in the way I referred to her, um, and she is much more than simply okay. porn star next door. <laughs> Brian, I wonder if we could uh, step back a little bit, um, and I wonder if you'd like to comment on what you see, perhaps as Dutcher's legacy to uh, Mormon cinema, um, if you like that term and use it, or, um, or to filmmaking in general. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, well, sure, absolutely. I mean, I think that he's got a great legacy in terms of three pretty solid films. Um, a lot has been said that he is the godfather of Mormon cinema, and my personal opinion is that Mormon cinema existed before him and will exist long after him. Um, I think that perhaps his biggest contribution has been this creation of sort of uh, a distribution system of films, you know? When he got God's Army, the first one, in theaters, and you know, people were able to see it. I mean, that, that was his major contribution, if, in, my, in my opinion, in addition to his films. Because now, you know, I can go to a blockbuster down the road here 
on Venice Boulevard and see films like States of Grace and the Book of Mormon movie on the shelf. And that, that's just amazing. So all the people that come after Richard Dutcher owe him a big debt in that regard. But that wasn't really going on before. Now it is going on before. So I think that's a, a huge legacy. Um, at the same point, you know, one of the things about Richard Dutcher that is controversial is he was prophesying for years and years that Mormon cinema was dead and dying. And it, went, it, was, quite, it was quite a lingering death. And I think that, you know, to the other more anonymous filmmakers that are toiling, that are trying to get their projects done, was a bit of a, uh, a put-down or at least, you know, uh, a, an unneeded bit of negativity. Um, the truth of the matter is, in my opinion, it's a great time to be a Mormon filmmaker, the best time ever. There's exciting projects being made every day, everywhere. And uh, so there'll be a lot of great things. Mormon cinema isn't dead in any sense of the word. Hello? Oh, uh, we're here, yeah. Okay. <laughs> did, you have another, did you have another point to make? Or, no. Or was... That was it. Okay. Sorry, I thought you I thought you had three different things for the for the legacy. But that that is great, Brian. Thank you. I, I think those are very helpful comments. This is an area I, I'm not as well versed in Mormon cinema generally. Um and I, I am interested to hear your thoughts on it. Um I you know, it was interesting to me as I watched Dates of Grace, um I listened afterwards to the director's commentary track on the special features option of the D V D and it, it was very um sort of illuminating to hear Dutcher's own comments and, and it made me think a little bit about um, what direction Mormon cinema can or should go in um, and whether you know we'll see another Dutcher come along to uh, replace him or whether we'll, you know, whether we'll see a very different model of filmmaker and filmmaking um, take its place. It was interesting, um, Dutcher began talking near the end of his commentary about um, the kinds of, of um, the differences between an artistic film, an art house film, and a commercial film, identifying and preferring very strongly um, an artistic film. He talked about you know the, the different kinds of filmmakers, um, the sort of auteur version of filmmaking where there's one uh, controlling um, vision, the 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 genius filmmaker who um, you know shares his unique uh, vision on life with with the rest of us, um, and it seemed to me that you know this was this was the kind of film he said that he enjoyed seeing a unique sensibility portrayed, um, and it seemed to me that this was the direction in which he saw his own films and filmmaking going. Um, and, and I think, if I may, there there we can look at his films and see some of that going on. I mentioned earlier that you know I think his great achievement is um, the way he taught us to portray ordinances. Um, in the first two films, the ordinances were done um, relatively straightforwardly. They were done very realistically um, with minimal um, music um, or emotionalism. There was some, but it, it was, it was um, not foregrounded. Um, and very much focusing on human, human faces um, and the human effects of, of these ordinances. Um, in States of Grace, there's one very interesting sequence um, where there's a confirmation of Carl, a former gang member, um, that is uh, 
you know, this, the ordinance is portrayed on screen, but is done in a very different manner from any of the ways that Dutcher has done ordinances before. It's a very stylized portrayal. It uses uh, crane equipment, as he explained in the in the commentary. Um, show, you know, it's very highly choreographed. Um, it, you know, it shows from above the circle of priesthood holders and um, turns it more into an aesthetic object than a human experience. And you know, then it's intercut with um, another horrifying scene of Carl's younger brother being murdered by a rival gang. So we cut from you know the the transcendent ordinance to you know, the, the, the horrifying sin of murder. I think there, you know, is an, an important thematic point to be made here um, that Dutcher is making about, you know, the, the availability of grace and forgiveness in a fallen world. And yet it really strikes me that this is um, not in this, these scenes were not in the service of the Mormon ordinances and the Mormon experience itself, but rather in the service of Dutcher's unique vision, you know, his own artistic um, uh, prowess in, you know, in crafting these, these highly stylized visual images for us. I think um, that points to the direction that he is, is, is moving or sees himself moving at least. And I think in some ways that is very problematic um, for a Mormon filmmaker. There's a long history in Western civilization since the Romantic period and probably before of the artist as an outsider, the artist with um, with a unique vision, a sort of prophetic vision, who critiques um, power structures, who stands in an oppositional outsider position to the dominant communities, um, and frankly, this is a very difficult position to sustain um, in the Mormon community for a lot of reasons. Um, some of them have to do with uh, faults of Mormons themselves. Some of them have to do with the importance of community in Mormon doctrine and experience. And some of them have to do with the faults of the filmmakers and the artists themselves. Uh, but I think we've seen writers and artists and filmmakers one by one who take this particular romantic vision of what the artist is and what art is. And we've seen them leaving the church. And, and it makes me wonder whether we need to come up with a whole new paradigm for what is art, what is an artist, D must it be an outsider, uh, must it be an intention and opposition to, um, to institutional power always. I think that if you go back further in history, we, you can find some great examples of um, ways to create art and to be an artist that don't depend on this particular vision of the sort of transcendent, transcendent view of the artist. I will be very interested um, to see over the next couple of years what Mormon films appear, whether they sort of take Dutcher's view, um, which is the, the, the conventional view, frankly, of what an art film is, um, or whether they are able to, um, whether they simply go the commercial route, you know, um, to, to try and get big box office and, and um, to cater to the whims of, um, of the audience, or whether they're able to develop some sort of a third paradigm for what an art movie is, uh, what, what cinema should be in relationship to our community. Um, I, I, hope, I hope someone comes along who's able to do that. Uh, Brian, do you have any final thoughts that you'd like to add um, before we close out this segment? Uh, no, I just think that you make some interesting points. It'll be very interesting to see what happens with uh, Mormon cinema in general. I think there'll be a continued tension as there is in all cinema between art and commerce, 
Um, I think that as Dutcher continues to work, you'll see that as well because I think that he's going to try and broaden uh, sort of his sensibility a little bit and his subject matter. And, and from the looks of his next two projects, he's doing stuff that, you know, maybe more commercially appealing to a larger audience. So, yeah, it'll be very interesting to see how he evolves in particular. But I think that it is the nature of filmmaking, particularly independent filmmaking, that it takes a kind of, you know, auteur, independent, um, devil-may-care spirit to even make a film. And that's something inherent in the filmmaking process that I think that will be there for a long time. It's kind of interesting because it's a very collaborative type of art, and yet, you know, directing in particular, uh, especially if you're a writer, director, editor, as Dutcher has been, uh, it's, it's very much sort of an individual, uh, you know, endeavors at the, at the same time. So it'll be interesting if we, if what you propose that we need sort of a more community-minded, sort of collaborative uh, approach. I don't know if filmmaking is necessarily where that that type of art art is going to come from because there's so many things in order to just make a film require a lot of individual drive and spirit, and I think that the films that Richard Dutcher has been making are all examples of, of what is what is required to make a film. So, we'll yeah. see. Very, very good point. It may be that uh, that film is not, in fact, to be our, you know, Mormon's great artistic medium um, because of the well, constraints me, of the Let me just the say genre. that also, sorry to interrupt, I mean, no. maybe, but what we, what I am seeing and observing is that the the next great Mormon films are going to be be perhaps documentaries or animation, which I think that are a mm-hmm. little bit different from narrative films. And I think that a lot of the sort of the hangups uh, are less present in documentary forms or animation. I think that if you were to go forward in the time machine ten or fifteen years from now, I would expect to see a lot of the great accomplishments in documentary and and animation among Mormon filmmakers. So. Yeah, that is a great point, and one that I thought myself. I, I often think that documentary is a, is the future. You know, it, I I wanted to just make one closing point um, that works also sort of as a segue to our next segment. Uh, in in the first film, God's Army, uh, the protagonist Elder Allen is having a conversation with a, a very pretty. Um, but uh, perhaps a little conceited sister missionary, um, Sister Franck, and she asks him in a sort of condescending way, "What are you know? What are his three favorite books?" And and he asks her first to respond to that, um, and you know this is a setup for a joke wherein he insults her by by naming his three favorite books as the Bible, the Book of Mormon, and and the Pearl of Great Price, um, or perhaps it's the Doctrine and Covenants, um, but. I, th- I found it very interesting what Dutcher put in Sister Frank's mouth at that moment. Her three favorite films were, or, sorry, books were *The Grapes of Wrath*, uh, two Tolstoy cho- choices tied for second. I believe it was *War and Peace* and uh, *Anna Karenina*, and finally uh, the, *My Name Is Asher Lev* by Chaim Potok. And it strikes me that each one of those examples. Uh, of books are are in precisely the vein that I was talking about. In particular, my name is Asher Lev, where there is a young man who is an artist who struggles to um, define his relationship to uh, an orthodox 
Jewish community and to, to find the way that an artist can be within the boundaries of, of a community to see whether there's such thing as an insider artist um, or whether an, arti an artist must always stand outside um, tackling what I feel are um, are, are the, the most important themes of, of Brigham City as well as States of Grace and perhaps Dutcher's own personal artistic and spiritual journey as well. Um, so I think in some ways um, Dutcher's movement away from the church might have been uh, foreshadowed from the very beginning in, in God's army um, in that small way. Uh, Brian, thank you so much uh, for participating with me. I, I really enjoyed our conversation. Um, I think you had a lot to add to particularly my understanding of, of the characters in, um, in States of Grace. So thank you very much. Uh, thank you. It's been fun. All right, uh, we will, on that note, uh, move on to the second part of our segment, and I will uh, bring in uh, Dave Landreth now to be my conversant here. Dave, welcome to the show. Thank you, Rosalind. Good to be on board here. Uh, as John uh, mentioned at the beginning, um, for this last part of the, of the podcast, I was interested in talking about um, an article that I read last week in the New York Times Magazine, um, as John rightly said, it was entitled Orthodox Paradox um, and <laughs> was written by a, a man, Noah Feldman. It suddenly got quiet. Are we all still together? I'm here. Okay. <laughs> um, you can find a link to uh, this piece at the blog. Um, Mr. Feldman is a law professor and a fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations, um, according to his biography in the New York Times Magazine. In the article, Mr. Feldman describes his complex relationship with the Orthodox Jewish community, and in particular with the yeshiva in which he was educated. Feldman married outside his religious community, and as a result, um, he feels that he's been excluded from its inner social circle. His article um, opens with the following anecdote. I'll just read the first two paragraphs. Uh, a number of years ago, I went to my 10th high school reunion in the backyard of the one classmate whose parents had a pool. Lots of my classmates were there. Almost all were married, and many already had kids. This was not as unusual as it might seem, since I went to a yeshiva day school, and nearly everyone remained orthodox. I brought my girlfriend. At the end, we all crowded into a big group photo shot by the school photographer who had taken our pictures from the first grade through graduation. When the alumni newsletter came around a few months later, I happened to notice the photo. I looked, then looked again. My girlfriend and I were nowhere to be found. I didn't want to seem paranoid, especially in front of my girlfriend, to whom I was by that time engaged. So I called my oldest school friend, who appeared in the photo, and asked for her explanation. You're kidding, right? She said. My fiancé was Korean-American. Her presence implied the prospect of something that, from the standpoint of Orthodox Jewish law, could not be recognized, marriage to someone who was not Jewish. That hint was reason enough to keep us out. Feldman goes on from there to explore the challenges and contradictions of living an observant religious life in the midst of modern secularism. For any Mormon reader, uh, at least for me, the resonances between the Orthodox Jewish experience and the active Mormon experience uh, rings loud and clear. And in fact, the piece raises many of the questions about individual and community inherent in Dutcher's films. So on that note, um, Dave Landreth, I wonder if you would start us out just by giving us your general impression of, of the piece. Um, did you enjoy it? What did he get right? What did he get wrong? 
I think Feldman's certainly a very good writer. I enjoyed it. I found it to be um, a little bit manipulative, um, and I thought that he uh, emphasized the peculiarity of religion a bit too much. What he talks about when he um, describes the separatism, I think the example uh, from the quote that you gave is a good one, um, the separateness that he feels from his school, I think uh, he fails to acknowledge that that goes kind of both ways. Um, that he has this distance from them as well as their distance from him. And um, his willingness to lay that at the feet of religious orthodoxy, I think, is misguided because I think it's everywhere in society. It's part of the human condition that we define ourselves in terms of these boundaries that we create between the groups that we belong to and the groups that we don't belong to. Yeah, I... I I agree with you in a lot of ways. Uh, this anecdote about the social shunning that he experienced um, opens the piece, and I think in many ways it's sort of the subtext throughout, although he goes on to discuss a lot of the other um, difficulties in, uh, in practicing Orthodox Judaism in the modern world. I, I, I felt, in, you know, he, he acknowledges near the end of the piece, he writes the following, from the standpoint of the religious community, of course, the preservation of collective mores requires sanctioning someone who chooses a different way of living. So here, here he acknowledges um, the, the, the needs and um, difficulties of the religious community itself, but I feel like in other parts of the piece he ignores that, or, or he, he tends to understand the social shunning as um, a sort of personal punishment or a kind of revenge for his own personal dissent, rather than um, simply maintaining the norm for the benefit of other community members. Um, I, I wondered, for example, if uh, his exclusion from the newsletter was not so much about um, a personal censure as about trying to maintain donations from Orthodox alumni who would be put off by, you know, seeing his picture with um, a clearly a non-Jew girlfriend. Um, it, it may not be as much about him as he tends to think it is. <clears throat> so Dave, how do you think the kind of social marginalization that Feldman experienced uh, compares with Mormon practices? Do you see anything similar um, in our Mormon experience? Well, I, I certainly do. I mean, I think if you went to BYU and you pursued then a, a post-school career in, say, pornography or in liquor, um, that your accomplishments would be unlikely to be recognized by BYU's alumni magazine. Um, <laughs> thinking of the school where uh, I ended up going after BYU is a very conservative school, Wabash College, and you know they trumpeted that Robert Allen at the time was the CEO of AT&T. And um, I didn't see anywhere, it was kind of a dirty little secret we joked about on campus, that Lanny Davis, who's Clinton's chief White House counsel, was a Wabash alum, but they never advertised that in any of the, uh, the literature on the school and talking about important alumni. Um, so I think we not only see it in Mormonism, but we see it everywhere in a lot of, very, in a lot of ways. Yeah. You know, I, I, it was interesting as I compared what he describes as his experience as a sort of perhaps less active Orthodox Jew uh, to what the experience of, of a Mormon who marries outside of the community or who chooses not to be observant um, might be. I, now, you know, I, I have my own personal experience and people may disagree with me, but, but I tend to think that um, the social shunning may not be as intense in 
Mormonism, and that may be because we have recourse to the kind of institutional sanctions um, that Orthodox Jews evidently no longer employ. For example, we do sometimes uh, formally excommunicate or disfellowship members of the church. Um, that way we can communicate from the institutional point of view um, the distance of the, you know, of the, of the party. Um, and yet from a social point of view, um, it's possible for them still to be incorporated into a ward. I certainly have attended wards where disfellowshipped or um, excommunicated Mormons um, have enjoyed a very warm fellowship uh, with other ward members. Um, and, and for example, you know, members who marry outside of the church or who um, have not been endowed or who are not fully observant in different ways, um, I think may experience a slightly less intense sort of social marginalization than Feldman did. Um, well, I think you raise a very interesting point about the formal consequences, because the irony with, with Mormonism is that we basically only excommunicate active Mormons. We, we're not in the habit of kind of chasing down inactive Mormons to see if they're living yeah. in sin and then trying them in a church court. And so there's... Um, you know, an interesting dynamic there where it's the active participant who gets excommunicated and then hopefully continues to participate toward um, some form of redemption. Um, yeah. But inactivity in Mormonism ends up isolating you from other Mormons uh, very informally. So it's more of an out-of-sight, out-of-mind kind of thing. I mean, I'm friends with a lot of the people that I'm friends with in church, frankly, because I see them every Sunday. I see them on Tuesday. I serve in presidencies with them so that we're constantly in communication. And if I were to drop out of that, they would simply be communicating with other people, and there would be no real natural mechanism for pursuing the friendship on another level. Yeah. I think, I think so, but it wouldn't be an act of shunning. But I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, no, no, I agree with that. I think it's a good point. Um, it's more sort of a, um, a, a sort of negative shunning rather than a, a positive, um, you know, intended intentional social sanctioning from the community. You know, one of Feldman's other major themes throughout the piece is the difficulty of reconciling religious traditions, which often tend to be pre-modern, um, with life in the contemporary secular world. He writes that, for example, the literature of orthodox religious communities in the modern world, quote, may be read as an embodiment of dialectical struggle, the unwillingness to ignore contemporary reality and constant interplay with the weight of tradition taken by them as authentic and divinely inspired. He, he says that uh, an observant orthodox uh, Jew um, thinks of himself as, quote, a Jew in the home and a man in the street. I thought that was an interesting uh, way of dividing sort of the public and private personas into religious and secular um, aspects. I'm wondering, uh, what is our Mormon calculus for negotiating our, our modern secular identities and our religious identities? Is it roughly equivalent to uh, what Feldman describes as the Jewish compromise, or do we have some sort of a different um, paradigm going on? Do you have any thoughts on that, Dave? Well, I think the answer is fairly diffuse because there's a lot of aspects to this um, group thing. And, and Feldman describes a lot of these aspects, and I don't think that he does his uh, thesis justice by talking in terms of a singular separation or a singular distance. And some of the, um, the themes that he touches on deal not only with, you know, you brought up shunning, um, mm -hmm. but then there's also the, uh, um, 
the other aspect in terms of uh, when he talks about the kosher law and how that separates, that actively separates you from the community um, without necessarily passing judgment on the community, but it's a withdrawal. Um, and uh, another aspect is the group loyalty. Um, and uh, at the same time, I think it's a bit presumptuous to talk in terms of a reality versus religion, as though religion is just something that papers over reality or that is a fantasy. Um, but um, in Mormonism, I see us giving shape to, uh, to our community in many of the same ways that he discusses. Um, the most interesting thing I thought was in terms of group loyalty, and that dealt with uh, a certain aspect of Jewish law, where a doctor can save Jewish lives on the Sabbath because the importance of the Jewish life trumps the commandment not to work. Um, and when it comes to saving a non-Jewish person's, person's life on the Sabbath, that's good, because not because all lives are important, but because of the potentially negative impact that not saving a Jewish life can have on the relationship between Jews and non-Jews. Yeah. And uh, so this, um, there's this element of, you know, the Jewish life is more important than the non-Jewish life, but at the same time, relation between the Jews is, and non-Jews is also very important. And we have two separate answers for both. And um, I see that as um, uh, this issue of Mormons being more important than non-Mormons is being fairly common in, in Mormonism. Um, we uh, tend to have you know, a plethora of callings in our ward devoted to perfecting the saints, and we have just a few devoted to proclaiming the gospel, for example. Um, and I, I think this is all, this is part of, uh, morality that we tend to look at and say, oh, that's terrible. Everyone should be just as important as everyone else. When that in fact is unrealistic, like as a parent, for example, you're a parent of children, right, Rosalind? Yes, I am. Have, so, I mean, say you could save, you have three children. I do. Your, your own three children or 10 strangers, which would you save? <laughs> your own three, right? Uh, yes, I would, yes. Right, you know, I mean, because, um, and this is part of uh, G.E. Moore had the scathing critique of um, of universalist morality, where it, it ignores the obligations that we have by virtue of the groups that we belong to, even where a teacher, the students in his class are more important to him than the teacher, than the students in the next class. So if he can do something that improves the education of the 10 students in front of them, that ends up being his obligation over doing something that improves the education of the 30 people in the class next door. Um, mm -hmm. and, uh, the question just becomes one of boundaries. And I think that that's, um, one of the, one of the big unknowns among non-Mormons. And I think even among Mormons in terms of testing this, like, you know, what, uh, this came up in terms when you mentioned Richard Dutcher being an artist and, um, this romantic conception of the artist as a, as a critic, the classical, um, mm -hmm. uh, court gesture kind of role and, uh, whether there's a place for that and, uh, I think that gets into one of the boundary conditions there. Um, you know, there's been talks by Benson and Packer on the issue of, you know, that define it very strictly in terms of group loyalty. And then there's been a lot of talk recently about being more open and more universalist. So, uh, you know, I, I, that part resonated with me as a Mormon. This is a conflict that we deal with. But I think, again, it's a universal one. Yeah. Right. Feldman sort of sets it up as the sort of modern liberal paradigm uh, in which sort of a human being is a human being. You know, institutional distinctions in status are unacceptable. 
individuals, you know, are the basis of society and they should be treated absolutely equally and, in fact, interchangeably. And he, you know, he contrasts this um, to uh, what religious institutions tend to uh, have traditionally done, which is to value collectives over individuals and to maintain different status classifications for groups and to value some over others. Um, but what I hear you saying is that uh, even even as secularists are imperfect liberals and that we continue to maintain you know, certain kinds of uh, um, value certain human lives over others in our, you know, uh, whether we realize that we're doing it or not, and that we, in fact, do uh, on many occasions value the particular communities to which we belong or collectives over individuals. So that we're, you know, we're imperfect liberals, and thus Feldman's um, dichotomy or tension between secular liberalism and uh, religious tradition perhaps is a false one. And I think yeah. that I think it's a good point. It's interesting that, you know, the source of many of the sorest and most controversial points in modern Mormonism are precisely over these issues of making distinctions, um, make, making various status classifications on the basis of race, of gender, of sexuality. Um, again, this is in some ways where the, the liberal paradigm, however imperfectly realized in secular society, does come in, you know, into tension with um, our religious traditions, which we, of course, um, believe have some relationship to, <laughs> to, to uh, divine inspiration. Um, so, so there are some tensions there, to be sure. You know, I, talking again about sort of the calculus for um, dividing out your religious and your secular selves, you know, I'm often reminded of what we hear in, in, in church, which is to be in the world, but not of the world. I would say that would be our sort of heuristic, our rule of thumb for um, figuring out who we are to be and for managing our, our multiple identities. Um, but I do think that it is a complex, uh, a complex negotiation and that Feldman gives the impression at least that it sort of shakes out sort of on a private versus public divide. I don't think that in Mormonism our religious and secular selves um, sort so easily into private versus public categories. Um, and I think that, you know, that has, has to do with um, a lot of particulars about, about what Mormon practice is. One of the other topics that he broaches on this, um, on this subject of sort of anachronism of, of religion is religious education. He describes his education in the yeshiva in glowing terms, you know, um, studying Homer and then diving right into studying the Talmud and, and um, arguing that the particular method of religious study in Judaism was a uniquely um, appropriate preparation for the skills you know, that would serve him as, as, as a lawyer. Um, so he sees in that way a special complementarity between religious education and secular education, um, at least in some ways. And you know, he goes on to point out other ways in which those two were in tension. Um, I, I was thinking about whether or not the, yesh, the yeshiva approach that he described was fundamentally similar to or different from um, the kind that the similar kind of experiment that BYU and other church colleges uh, colleges are attempting. Do you have any thoughts on that, Dave? I do. I mean, I um I thought it was interesting that he did talk about how um, studying Jewish tradition was something that helped him in his career uh, academically and job wise. Because um, I don't see that kind of complementary approach working well at BYU. I remember, uh, you know, you have this uh, 
set of religious classes you take. And when I transferred to Wabash, I was actually very surprised that I got real college credit for them because I really never thought of them as, as real classes. Um, <laughs> and so, and you know, I explained, I tried to explain to the registrar, like, well, that was just some course, you know, in the Book of Mormon. It wasn't that important. And, and he said, well, you know, the Book of Mormon is, you know, it's scripture by a major American religion. We can give you credit for that. And so, um, you know, I, 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 the, what I got from BYU, uh, in, in terms of the similarity uh, for what Feldman describes, is he talks about the willingness that the um, academics at his yeshiva had to discuss things in um, even when they were in conflict with uh, the requirements of Orthodox Judaism. Orthodox Judaism. So there's a sex education they had to give, um, teaching evolution in light of the Torah. Um, the main difference I saw at BYU was uh, I never saw any academics unwilling to discuss things, but it wasn't the academics that followed up by expressing reservations or by emphasizing the gospel. It was more often the students than the professors who expressed the desire to emphasize the religious aspects of, the, of an issue. So that BYU, instead of being some kind of uh, magic meld of religion and, and academia, the way that um, Feldman describes as yeshiva, ends up being more a traditional academic institution where students can go and encounter other students with shared values. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a very interesting point. Um, I, I, I agree. Um, well, I, I guess my view is that there is not such a felicitous sort of confluence between the ways that Mormons have traditionally um, related to their religion um, and sort of the way that we relate to secular knowledge as there is um, in, in the Orthodox Jewish world. I don't think that we emphasize sort of the, the deep and um, dogged <laughs> philosophical study of our scripture in the way that, uh, that he describes doing in his yeshiva experience. And so um, I, I think for that reason, you know, we, the, the religion classes that we take tend to be very, very different, not only in, in topic but also in method. Um, from from the other academic classes that we take at BYU. Now there are some exceptions, and there are some Mormons um, who who work to bring you know aspects of secular knowledge um, or or methods you know shared methods to their religious study. But I, I think that may oftentimes be the exception rather than the rule. So I think that um, BYU has a, a rather different challenge um, in combining the two than than does the yeshiva. The yeshiva. Well I also think Feldman expects his description of the yeshiva to kind of embody the conflict that he describes between uh, modernism and, and orthodoxy. And uh, that was something that actually rang hollow for me because um, I feel like the institution is always going to function differently from an individual or a group of individuals just because uh, you have questions of how to formulate policy that are tricky and not amenable to improvisation. Whereas with the individual, we do tend to, tend to simply improvise most of the time and often dismiss concerns about consistency. Yeah, I, I agree with that very much. I, you know, I, w I wanted to bring up here a, a novel that I read recently um, called The Lady's Auxiliary. Um, off the top of my head, I cannot remember the name of the author, but I will find it and I'll, and I'll have it in the, in the post that introduces the podcast. But it's, it's an extremely interesting um, novel. It was written by a woman, 
um, who had grown up in an Orthodox, ultra-Orthodox Jewish community in Memphis, uh, Tennessee, of all places. Um, and what, from what I gathered from, you know, the dust jacket, she uh, left that community, moved to New York City, um, and, and has become a writer, you know, is now sort of that classic outsider artist that we, that we talked about looking back and, and um, it, commenting on the community from, from which she arose. What's so interesting about the novel is that it's written not in the first person singular, but it's written in the, in the first person plural, that is, in the we. So the narrator of the story is this lady's auxiliary, which is in many ways like our relief society, the, the, um, the social club and religious club for the women of this very insular community. It tells the story of um, a woman who comes in as an outsider, moved to this town with her, a single mother with her daughter. She um, had converted to Judaism, but her husband had then died, leaving her a widow. Um, she wants to raise her daughter within Orthodox Judaism, though, so she comes in. And, of course, you know, very predictably, in some ways, she shakes things up. And um, it, it sort of brings to light, you know, many of perhaps the stereotypes of, of the outsider who comes and shakes things up a little bit. But it, because it's from the point of view of the community and the collective, um, it's especially interesting in its exploration of those themes. Um, in the end, it's very clear that the author has sort of stacked the deck against the community um, and in favor of, uh, of this artist who comes in um, and, and sort of shows them where they're going wrong. Again, there's a lot of letter of the law versus spirit of the law tension that goes on. Um, and I think in a similar way, Feldman has sort of stacked the deck against the community. Um, and I, I don't think he can really help doing that. It may, it may be impossible from his position as an outsider um, to, to truly inhabit the, the point of view of, of the institution. Nevertheless, I found both the novel and the article uh, very interesting um, and very illuminating. And in fact useful to me as I work to um, understand the points of view of my Mormon brothers and sisters who are now outsiders, you know, who are no longer members of the community, and to see how they might view things, uh, whether accurately or, or inaccurately. Dave, before we close this out, are there any final comments that you'd like to make on, on the article or any of the issues that we've discussed? Uh, no, I, I've uh, enjoyed this discussion. I think we've gone over a lot of the article, and I'd recommend that the listeners uh, take the opportunity to read it. Yes, I will too. And again, we'll have the link uh, to the article um, in the post that, that introduces the podcast. Dave, thank you so much. I really enjoyed our discussion. Um, thanks again to Brian Gibson. Um, he was a great conversant, as we talked about Dutcher. And thanks, of course, to John Dillon, who makes this all possible every week. Thanks, everybody, and bye-bye.
to hear more of this wonderful music, please check out ClaytonPixton.com. That's C-L-A-Y-T-O-N-P-I-X-T-O-N.com. Thank you very much.